Luke chapter 23. If you drive uh, down the Blue Ridge Parkway or up north on the Blue Ridge Parkway and you come to uh, Pennsylvania, you'll see a sign that marks the Eastern Continental Divide. Uh, the Eastern Continental Divide, it runs the entire length of the east coast of America along the Appalachian Mountains and the Appalachian Trails. And the Eastern Continental Divide is exactly what it sounds like. It is the place on our continent where the eastern slope and the western slope meet. And it's at the peak of this, this divide that when water falls, if it falls on the western side of the slope, the water will end up in the Mississippi River and eventually in the Gulf of Mexico. And if it falls on the eastern side of the slope, it's going to end up in the Atlantic Ocean. And it happens no matter where it falls along that line, one side or the other, water goes in different directions. And it's, it's, very, it's a half inch difference in that divide. So during a rainstorm, two water drops, raindrops, can fall parallel to each other, fall one half inch apart, one end up in the Gulf of Mexico, and one end up in the Atlantic Ocean. That's how drastic the divide is. Now, the passage that we are going to look at today is the dividing line of eternity for all of mankind. The story we're going to look at is the dividing line of where people, no matter who they are, no matter how they live their life, no matter where they're from, no matter what they do with their life, it is deter this, this event, this story determines whether people end up in eternity with God in heaven or separated from him for eternity in a real place called hell. In Luke 23, we see the story of two men. And these men, their lives are almost identical. But they make very different decisions about Jesus and it changes where they end up in eternity. Look at chapter 23. Look at verse number 20, uh, 32. It says, And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. Now, the word malefactor there, it literally means criminal. Uh, this same Greek word is translated other places in the New Testament as an evil doer. But the stories we read about these two men... And the reason that they are where they are tells us something about them. These weren't just thieves. These weren't just pickpockets. These weren't just even, you know, people who had maybe made a mistake or something. These were hardened criminals. Because they were being crucified by the Roman government, most people believe that these men were considered terrorists to the Roman government. They were rebels who hated the Roman Empire, who hated the Roman government, and they were violently attacking the Roman Empire, trying to overthrow it. That's why they're there, because they have violently attacked the Roman oppressors, and so they have been captured and convicted by the Roman Empire to be put to death. They are terrorists to the Roman government. They are violent men. And look at verse number 33. 
And, they, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now, the word Calvary in the Greek, it literally means the skull. Uh, the Cal- Calvary was uh, called in other places in Scripture, in other translations, the place of the skull. This was a rock face that overlooked the city of Jerusalem that looked like a skull. And this was a place that the Roman government would execute criminals so that people could look up from Jerusalem, look up to this, this rock face that looked like a skull, and they could see people being punished for their crimes against Rome. So this is where Jesus has been led. This is where those criminals are. They are three men hanging on crosses on this place called the place of the skull. Now, this rock face uh, and this, this, this event here, this is the dividing line of human history. And at its pinnacle, on this place that looks like a skull, there are three crosses. On one cross is the Son of God. On the other two crosses, on either side of him, are two criminals, two men who deserve to be where they are, two men who are receiving what they deserve for their crimes. Now, when the, when the president makes a speech, he, he always brings up on stage with him uh, people who are kind of important to whatever policy he's talking about, whatever thing he's trying to promote. He always has people on stage behind him and around him that are important to it. So like if he's talking about a military uh, invasion or a military operation, he's always got generals behind them in their in their 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 uniforms with their stars and everything. And you know they're all decked out. They look they look very official and very imposing. You know if he's talking about uh, uh, maybe a, a HUD uh, urban housing development uh, policy, he's got. Some, some, the HUD advisor there and the counselor and all those cabinets there. And he's, whoever, whatever he is talking about, he has people that are important to that issue or relevant to that issue on the stage with him. Jesus is on the stage of human history. He is talking about or displaying the redemption of mankind. And on the stage with him, he has two criminals. He has two people who, in our culture, in our society, we would deem unworthy and undeserving. During the defining moment of God's work in human history, he chooses to walk onto the stage with two unnamed criminals. And that is what the greatest, because this is what the greatest moment in history is is about. This is who he is dying for. This is who he is being crucified for. He is, he is, this is who he is going to be impacted by what he is doing. So these three crosses, they tell the whole story of human history. And as we continue through the Bible, we're going to look at them. So let's look at the first cross. The first cross we see on, on the hill there is number one, the cross of redemption. This, obviously, this is the cross that Jesus is hanging on. 
His is the cross of redemption because Jesus is the only one on that hillside hanging on a cross that doesn't deserve to be there. He is the only one who is suffering and dying for crimes he never committed. Not just against the Roman government, but against God, period. He is the only one who is completely innocent. He is being executed, humanly speaking. Now, we understand, as believers, we understand he's being executed for us. He's dying for us, and we're going to get to that. But from an outsider looking in just in this time, he is being executed because the religious and the secular leaders of his day thought he was dangerous. He thought he was a rebel. The religious leaders hated him because he was, he, they were threatened by his authority. He was taking followers that followed them and obeyed them, and now they were starting to follow him and, and listen to his teaching that was completely different from what they had taught. So he was a threat to their, their, their authority and their place in the culture. The secular leaders were executing him because to them, he was a nuisance who didn't bow down to the authority in Rome. They believed that the Roman government and Caesar specifically were all-powerful and deserving of worship and honor, and Jesus refused to bow down to their power. Now, the Jewish people who are at the cross mocking him, they were disappointed because they expected the Messiah to come. They expected him to come as a conquering uh, general to lead an army in a rebellion against Rome and overthrow the Roman government. And so they're disappointed that this man who called himself the Messiah, who called himself the Son of God, didn't do what they hoped he would do. The, the disciples were confused by him. All these teachings about dying and rising again three days later, they didn't understand it and they were confused by how he acted and how he treated people. And so they are so confused by him and his teaching that one of them betrays him and the rest of them just completely abandon him. His crucifixion represents the, the cumulative or the, the collective failure of the human race caused by jealousy, arrogance, apathy, unbelief, and cowardice. But God, now the Bible tells us this, God had a purpose for this. This was something that God had been pursuing since the fall of man. This was something God had put into motion long before he ever said, let there be anything. See, we need, sometimes we don't, we forget about that. You know, sometimes we, we read the Bible and we think about God and we think, oh, well, God created the heavens and the earth and everything was perfect and good and Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and everything was great and perfect and they messed up and when they messed up, God had to come up with a plan. No, before God made anything, God knew we would fall and God had a plan to redeem us before he even created us. Now, I can't wrap my brain around that because I'm thinking if, I, if I'm God and I know they're going to mess up. I'm going to create humanity. They're going to rebel against me. They're going to reject me. They're going to, going, to, going to end up having to kill me. And most of them are going to spend eternity separated from me in hell. Why even make us? To me, it's like, why would you do that? But I'm not God, which is good. Because if I was God, we'd live in a vastly different world. 
And so God's, God's God, I'm not. His thoughts are above my thoughts. But before God made anything, he knew mankind would fall. He knew mankind would need a redeemer. And he had this plan set in place long before time ever began. So since eternity passed, God has been working and pursuing this moment. You know, from the beginning, this was something he'd been pursuing since time began. From the beginning, God had told his people that he would send a savior to take their place for the, under the curse of death. You know, remember he tells Adam and Eve after they sin in the garden and he has to kill that innocent lamb to cover their, their bodies, their nakedness with skin because they tried to cover it with leaves and, so, and tried to hide from God. So he kills that lamb, makes them skins of, 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 of uh, coats of skin and covers it up and he tells them, he goes, look, you're going to have to go away. You, you can't be in my presence anymore. We can't fellowship anymore. Our relationship is, is changed. But I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send someone who is one day going to crush the head of the enemy, is going to destroy the serpent that, made, that tricked us and, and led us into failure and led us into temptation, that one day this Savior will come and crush the head of the serpent. But then he goes, but the serpent's going to bite his heel. He's going to inject him with the poison and the curse of death. And from that point on, from that first promise in Genesis chapter 3, story after story after story that we've looked at, they show God reminding us of this promise to, hey, yes, it's bad. The world is sinful. We are separated from God. But one day I'll send a redeemer. One day I'll send someone to take away the sting of death and take away the curse of hell that you can put your trust in and be redeemed and reconciled back to God. You know, after destroying the, the world with a, a flood in Noah's day, Remember what the first thing that Noah saw when he came out of the boat? He saw, he saw the rainbow, the symbol of God saying, where God said, I will never again destroy the world with water. Now, we, we talked about this when we looked at the story of Noah. That rain, when it says rainbow in the Bible, the Hebrew word literally means war bow. It is a bow and arrow. And it, where was it pointing? It was pointing towards heaven. God was telling man, I will never again shoot my wrath onto the world because of sin. I will take the wrath for sin. I will take the punishment for sin. I will never again pour it out on the world. It's a promise that God would absorb the arrow of his judgment and wrath instead of shooting it down to us. Remember the story of Abraham? And Isaac, of course, remember the story of Abraham where God's promised him a son and it takes years. But now Abraham, he's an old man. God has given him a son, Isaac. And God comes to Abraham after fulfilling this promise years later. We don't know how long. Maybe Isaac was eight. Maybe he was 30. We don't know. But soon enough, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, remember that, that son I promised you? Yeah, remember I gave that son to you? Yeah, great. I want you to sacrifice that son to me. You know, Abraham doesn't fight with God. He doesn't argue with God. He just says, okay, you promised to give him to me. You promised to give me children through him. So whatever you say, so he takes him up on the mountain and he's about 
to sacrifice his son to God when God sends an angel to say, stop, don't do that. And in the bushes, he had a sacrifice prepared. A sacrifice to take the place for Isaac. A ram to die in Isaac's place. This was another picture of God dying for us. You know, the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament was built on the concept of an innocent sacrifice, an innocent substitute taking the place for the guilty. Once a year, every family would come before the, the tabernacle, the temple, when the temple was built, and they would bring with them a sacrificial lamb, a spotless, innocent lamb. Couldn't have any blemishes, couldn't have any, any diseases or, or crooked leg or anything. Had to be a, a perfect, innocent lamb. They would bring that lamb before the high priest and the father would lay his hand on the head of the lamb and he would, he would symbolically transfer all his sin for that year to this lamb. And that lamb would die for, his, for the family's sin. An innocent sacrifice dying for the sins of someone else. Remember when, you know, Isaiah said that one day, God would send his servant to be the lamb that suffered for the sins of the world. He said he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah said that the punishment that he endured would bring peace to us, that we would be healed by his stripes. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time? Remember what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every other lamb before never took away your sin. It just covered your sin. Your sin was covered for a while. But that's why you had to go back every year. Because every year you had to cover your sin. So that when God looked down from heaven, he didn't see your sin. He saw the blood of the lamb. Jesus is not going to be the, the lamb that covers our sin but he's going to be the lamb that takes away our sin. So that now when we look down from heaven and God sees us as those who have accepted Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, got him out of the grave. And when we, he sees that we've accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins, he doesn't look down and see, you know, our blood covered, our sins covered with the blood of Jesus. He sees us sinless as Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't cover our sins, he takes away our sins. See, on the head of Jesus, God was going to lay the sin of the entire human race and pour out his wrath for that sin. Jesus took our sin. Jesus became sin for us. Here's what that means. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, all the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was or ever could be in the world. For he, being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, is not now an innocent person without sins, but a sinner. Our most merciful father sent his only son to the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, be thou Peter, that denier, 
Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. That thief which hanged upon a cross. And briefly be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them. Here now comes the law and that that, that here now comes a law and saith, I find him a sinner, therefore let him die upon the cross. And so he setteth him and killeth him. By this means the whole world is purged and cleansed for our sins. Here's what that means. When Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't die for our sins. He died as a sinner for us. When God looked at him, he didn't see, here's a perfect lamb of God that I have symbolically transferred the sins of mankind to. He goes, no, he is a sinner. And sinners have to die. And so Jesus became sin for us for a period. He became sin for us, died the death we should have died, suffered the punishment we should have suffered, but... Because he lived a perfect, sinless life, he was resurrected again and rose from the dead, declaring that he was God and the debt had been paid. Because God says, look, if you want to go to heaven, there's two things you have to do. Two things you can do. You can live a perfect, sinless life. Completely obey the law of God. Never mess up, never get mad, never lose your temper, never tell a lie, never do nothing. You can live a perfect, sinless life. Who can do that? Nobody can. Or you can accept Jesus' sacrifice because he did live a perfect, sinless life. He completely obeyed the law of God. And then as he hung on Calvary, he became my sin and died for me to pay the debt I should have paid and then rose again three days later to redeem me and reconcile me back to God the Father. Here's how 2 Colossians says it. It says, in you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he resurrected together with him having forgiven all your sins. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, in this culture, during this times, if you were guilty of a crime, you would, when you were thrown in jail, they would put above your cell on some, some, uh, a piece of paper, a parchment or a plaque or whatever, what your crime was, and how long you were having, how long you had to sent your sentence was. So your crime was murder. You were sentenced to thirty years or whatever. Or your sentence, your crime was theft, and you were sentenced to five, whatever it was. So on right above your cell, you had what you had done and what your punishment was. It was called the handwriting of ordinances. Paul says Jesus came through, and he took all of those down from our cells. And he nailed them to his cross and says, God, they are now innocent of those and I will suffer. I will take the blame for their sins. I will be guilty of what they have done. Jesus took them and he made them his own. We were guilty, but he became guilty for us and died 
for us. See, Jesus, when, when it says he became sin for us, he became the husband who's neglected and abused his wife. He's become the immoral, immortal, immoral woman, immoral woman that destroyed her life. He became the drug addict, the teenager that lies to their parents, the hypocrite living a double life. He became the proud, the selfish, and the greedy. On the cross, he became our sin so that from the cross, he could look at those who had rejected him, who had failed him, who had spit upon him, and say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is the cross of redemption. On the cross, he becomes our sin and he prays to God to forgive those who are putting him on the cross. See, he could extend forgiveness to us because he was being punished for us. See, here's what true biblical forgiveness is. Because we think we know what forgiveness is, but we really don't. Biblical forgiveness is when you absorb the consequences for someone's actions against you into yourself. Here's what I mean. Lewis has a, a business, right? Lewis has a, an upholstery business. And so if you need anything upholstered, go to Lewis. Say Lewis in his business, someone lies about him and his business and it ruins him. He loses his shop. He loses his business license, whatever. He, he loses all of his customers. Someone lied about him. And because they lied about him, he is suffering. He didn't do anything wrong. He was completely in the right. But someone lied about him and has, has hurt him because of their sin. Now, Lewis has, has two options. He can forgive them or retaliate against them. Now, if he retaliates against them, he can, he can try to spread lies about them. He can try to get them in. He can maybe even, if it's illegal, he can have them prosecuted and try to get his good name back. He can start telling people about how they lied and try to expose them. And he can try to hurt them in return or he can forgive them. And when he forgives them, what he does is he is taking the sting of their sin, the pain that they gave him, and he's saying, it stops here. They hurt me, but it's going to end there. I'm not going to hurt them back. I'm not going to try to retaliate. I'm not going to try to get even. They hurt me, and I forgive them, so I'm not letting it go any further. I am stopping the hurt with me. It's refusing to absorb, to, to, to retaliate. You absorb the suffering of, their, of your, their sin. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He suffered so we wouldn't have to. You know, it's not, it's not that just Jesus died for you. Jesus died instead of you. He suffered so we wouldn't have to. He absorbed that pain for us. Now, that's the first cross, the cross of redemption. Let's look at the second two crosses. Number, the second cross is the cross of rejection and the cross of repentance. Now, the other two crosses, of course, are on either side of Jesus, and they have these two criminals on here. And they, but these, these two men, they're both suffering for what they deserve, but they have two different results. Let's look at verse number 39. Continuing in Luke 23, 
<coughs> verse 39, let me find it here. It says, and one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou, thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, these, these, again, this, these two crosses, Jesus, Jesus in the middle, you got one thief on one side, one thief on the other. They both react very differently to who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and has two drastic results. These men, again, they had a lot in common. They were both equally bad. They were both criminals who, according to one of them, is getting what they deserve. We deserve to die. We deserve to suffer like this. We deserve this punishment, but he doesn't. So they're both very bad men, uh, according to our standards. In fact, in Matthew, when we read the story of Matthew, you see that when Jesus first gets there, both of them start cursing Jesus. Both of them are railing against Jesus. But one of them has a change of heart when he sees Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Both wanted Jesus to save them from death. In fact, even the one that rejected him wanted to be saved from death. Look what he says in verse 39. He goes again, if you're really the Messiah, then save yourself and us. He didn't want to be forgiven for his sins. He wanted to get out of his circumstance. If you're really the Messiah, prove it by making my situation better. By taking away my pain. By fixing what I have messed up. Then I'll believe you're the Messiah. But in the end, this thief rejected Jesus because he didn't fulfill the idea of what he thought a Messiah should do. Again, he thought, if you're, if you're God, then you're going to help me. You're going to do what I need to make my life better, to make my life easier. You're going you're to fit into my mold. And if you don't fit into my mold, you're not God and I'm going to reject you. So he rejects Jesus as the Messiah. He rejects the fact, because remember, on the cross, when Jesus is dying, he's dying for that guy's sins too. He's dying for what he had done. And he is dying for him. So he is becoming sin for that guy so that guy can become the righteousness of God. But he didn't fit the mold he had, so he rejected him as his Savior. The other thief... He began to notice some things about Jesus, about the, about the situation that, that gave him the, the, what is necessary for true conversion. And these are the things that mark the dividing line of all history, the dividing line of all mankind, where you will end up in eternity. It's all determined by if you understand these things that this thief believed. Here's the first thing he noticed. He, he noticed the difference and seeking help from God and actually seeking God. Now, the repentant thief, notice, he doesn't ask to be taken down. He doesn't say, I believe you're the Messiah. 
I believe you're the Son of God who is dying for my sins. And if I put my faith and trust in what you're doing on the cross and the fact that you're going to be resurrected in three days, if I put my faith in that, then I'll be in heaven. I understand that. I accept you. Now, please get me off the cross. He doesn't ask for that. He doesn't ask for his situation to be made better. He is more concerned with being right with Jesus than having Jesus help him out of a painful situation. He doesn't ask, take me down. He just says, when you get to where you're going, can you remember me? I'm going to die right here. But when you get to heaven, when you get to your father, can you remember me? This thief, he realized that what he needed was not a change in circumstances, but a change in what his life is centered on. So instead of asking God for the life that he wants, he wants to make God the center of his life. And there's a difference in seeking God as the best means in life to get what you want or get what you need and making God the focus of your life. There's a difference between loving God for who he is and using God as a means to an end. See, John Piper, he said many people, they, they treat God like a tire iron. Like, a, a, you know, the thing you use to get the lug nuts off your car. How many of y'all have one of those in your car? You have a tire iron? Okay, more of you need tire irons in your cars, all right? Because you're going to get a flat and not be able to take it off unless you got AAA, whatever. But, you know, you got those tires. I got the four-way in my car. You know, I, I, I like my tire iron. It is very useful when I need to change a tire. And I use it when I need to change a tire. But I don't love my tire iron. My tire iron has never changed my life. You know, I'm not going to sing songs about my tire iron. I'm not going to hang my tire iron up in the house and, and display it. No one does that except serial killers, and that's their trophy, but that's another story anyway. But, so, you know, it's, it's useful for what you, it's, it's good for when you need it, but when you don't need it, you don't think about it. You know, my tire iron is in the back of my car, I hope. That's where I left it, and I hope it's there when I need it, but I don't wake up every morning going, let me check my tire iron, make sure it's where it is. No. Now, when I need it and it's not there, I'm going to get mad and call Parker because he's probably the one that took it out of my car. But I don't think about it until I need it. And that's, that's how we, too many people, treat God. It's useful. It is useful for taking care of what I really love, my car. And that's how people see God. He is useful for what we need him for. He's good for peace in life. He's good for our a stable family. He's great for going to heaven but he's not needed in other areas of my life. We see God as useful and not beautiful. There's an easy way to see if that's how you view God. Because look, we're, we're talking about repentance here. Yes, with this thief, I'm talking about repentance for salvation. Vitally important. If you have never repented of your, which is a change of direction, a change of mind, saying, God, I'm going to stop trusting my good works. My, I'm going to stop trusting whatever it is and start trusting only in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for famous as this. That's repentance for salvation. But as a believer, repentance doesn't stop there. It starts there. We are to live a life of repentance. 
Because when you get saved, yes, Jesus died for all your sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. He paid the price for them. He became those sins for you so that now you are the righteousness of God before God, but you're still gonna sin. You're still gonna mess up and you still need to seek forgiveness and repentance of God. So here's how to tell if you're truly living a life of repentance. Do you look to God for the life that you want to have or do you want God to be the center of your life no matter what your life is like? I don't, here's what I'm saying. Do you want God to change your circumstances and make your life better? Or do you look at your life as it is and say, you know what? It's a mess, but God's the center of it, so I don't care. It can be as messy as it needs to be. God's the center, and that's all that matters. See, there's a difference in trying to appease God and really loving God. Repentance has to be a genuine change of heart towards God. You know, but it has to be true repentance. It can't be, God, I'm sorry I did that. I know I shouldn't have. Could you please give me what I need now? Or God, I want to I want to go to heaven when I die. So I accept your your gift of salvation and you'll take me to heaven when I die. And I'll see you when I get there. I'm going to live my life the way I want to now. That's not true Repentance. True repentance isn't just a get out of hell free card. It is a change of heart towards God that says, God, I've centered my whole life on everything but you. That changes now. Now my whole life is focused solely on you and what you want for me. You know, why do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus for a, a better marriage? Do you want Jesus to help you fix your health? help you get out of a jam to, to prosper you to get to heaven? Or do you want Jesus for Jesus? If it means even, or do you want Jesus to say, God, if it means I stay on this cross of bad health, if it means I, I stay on this cross of difficult circumstances, if it means my life doesn't get better at all, I still want you. Because you, are the most valuable thing in all of the universe. You have to be more serious about your soul than you are about your skin. We need to truly repent and not just try to make a deal with God. So how do you know if you've truly not truly repented? If you have some areas of your life that you compromise before God. You believe the lie that you can accept Jesus as your savior and not surrender to him as Lord of your life. Now, there's a false teaching out there called Lordship Salvation, where they say you have to make Jesus Lord of your life, and once you've made him Lord over every area of your life, then you can accept him as your Savior. It's backwards. You accept Jesus as your Savior, and he, he already is Lord of everything else. Here's a, he's Lord of everything. He's Lord of your marriage, Lord of your finances, Lord of your work life, Lord of your family. He's Lord of everything. So it's not like I am allowing God to be Lord. God is Lord. It is, he is now my savior and I recognize him as Lord. I allow him to have the Lordship over my life that he already has, but I've kept from him. See, people who accept Jesus as Savior but not Lord, they're like people who get married but want to keep dating. 
How would that work? I, I get married to April. We're coming up on our 23rd, second, fourth. No, we've been married a long time. 22nd, 23rd. I don't know. We were married in 1998, nine, eight, six, seven, something. 98. So you do the math. We're coming up on our 20 whatever wedding anniversary. If when we got married back in 1998 and I stood before her and I stood before our pastor and I, we got married and she said, do you take, yeah, I take, I do. And we got, and we said, we kissed and everything. We went out and then said, okay, honey, that was great. I got a date. I'll see you tomorrow morning. How do you think that marriage would have worked? Not at all. She, if she's not my only one, she's not my spouse at all. And that's the same thing. We can't say, okay, God, I want you as my savior to take me to heaven. That's your category. That's where you stay. I'm going to do whatever I want to do the rest of my life. You can't have it both ways. He is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. See, we, you don't, another way to tell if you haven't truly repented is if you're not growing in your relationship with Jesus. You don't spend time daily reading his word. You don't, don't spend time praying to him. If he's the center of your life, you will talk to him constantly. You're going to want to be in his word daily to learn about him and to hear from him. If your relationship with God consists of coming here and letting me give you a pep talk about God once a week, you don't have a relationship with God. Again, me and April coming up on 23rd, 23rd, whatever. If, I, we, if the day we got married, we got married and said, I do. If after that, if I didn't see her again or talk to her again, but every, every week I would go and spend an hour singing songs about her talking to people about her. Do I really have a relationship with her? No, I'm a stalker and a weird husband. But you have to spend time with someone to build a relationship. And if your relationship with God is not better than it used to be, Look, I'm not saying we don't have ups and downs, you know, because, you know, some of you, you've been saved for five years. Some of you have been saved, you know, since Moses came off the ark. Moses didn't come up with the ark, but anyway. So some of you have been saved forever. And so I'm not saying if you've been saved 100 years, you're, you're supposed to be a super Christian. But, you know, we all struggle with sins. But here's the thing. You know, I still, I, I still struggle with sin daily, sometimes hourly. You know, I struggle with them. I don't struggle with the same sins I struggled with 10 years ago. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're still bad. But they're not as bad, you know, in my eyes. In God's eyes, they are. So it's like, okay, I still, I conquer one sin, and then, you know, what the Holy Spirit does is, Holy Spirit says, great, we got that one taken care of. Now let's move down to list number 4,873. We've still got a lot to go. And so, but you're growing, you're learning more about God, you're feeling closer to God, you are growing in your relationship with Him. And to do that, you have to spend time with Him. You gotta get involved in growth groups and Sunday school to learn more about God or you won't grow in your relationship. Another way to tell if you've truly repented, are you actively involved in His mission? Are you actively involved in sharing the gospel and getting the gospel to the world? Is your church attendance based on how you feel on Sunday morning? If my attendance to church was based on how I felt on Sunday mornings, you would have me like once every three months. I, some, once every three months, I get up going, Woo, I can't wait to go to church. Most of the time it's, oh, I gotta go to church. But you're the pastor. That's why I gotta go. Because if I don't come, y'all don't come, and somebody's gotta, somebody's gotta open the door. But if, if that was, if your attendance is, oh, I, don't, I don't feel like it. Or I got, I got other stuff to do. 
if you're not serving in any way, if you're not sharing your faith, if you're not loving your neighbor, you're not actively involved in the mission. He can't be the center of your life if you're not living out his will for your life. Let's get back to the repentant thief. First of all, he noticed that he, there's a difference in accepting God and for, for who he is and everything. All right, number two, he understood his guilt before God. Now, this thief, he says something that's important, that's impossible to admit without God's help. Look at verse 41 again. He says, and we indeed justly, for we received a due reward for our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. So he says, look, we're being punished for what we deserve. Now remember, he's not just a thief. He is a rebel. He is a, a guerrilla warrior dead set on overthrowing the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is crucifying him. He's not saying Rome is right for what they're doing. He would never admit that. He wouldn't say, you know, Caesar is right for punishing us because we were, we were kind of mean to him. We said some bad things, so Caesar has the right to do this. No, no, he's not saying he's dying for what he did against Rome. He's saying, look, we deserve to be separated from God because we're sinners. We deserve to go to hell because of how we've lived our life. He, he, he is talking, he is saying we deserve to be abandoned by God. We deserve to be punished for our sins. We deserve to die before him. See, repentance Recognizes, recognizes that sin is first and foremost against God. Your sin hurts other people. Every sin hurts people on earth. Your lies hurt people. Your deceit hurts people. Adultery hurts people. It hurts people. But your sin primarily is against God. Remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba? Let's look at this story. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He has, hurt, he has violated his relationship with his other wives. He had, you know, seven of them at the time, but he, they didn't, it wasn't something they agreed. He violated his relationship with them. Uriah, her husband, is one of his top soldiers. He's violated his relationship with Bathsheba and, and Uriah. Then to cover it up, he has Uriah murdered. I'm sure, I know we, we don't talk about this, but I am positive Bathsheba loved her husband. All right? I'm sure she was devastated when he died. Yeah, she has to marry the king now to cover their sin. You know, when we try to talk bad about her, well, she shouldn't have been. She's, she's just a woman and he's the king. When the king says do this, you do it. So let's give her a break here. She's a victim too. Now her husband is dead. Her Uriah, is his dad is also one of David's closest friends. He's devastated by this. Then David lies to the whole nation of Israel to cover his sin up. His sin hurt a lot of people. But in Psalm 51, he says, against thee, the only, have I sinned. Now look, I'm not saying if you hurt somebody, you sin and you offend somebody, you hurt somebody, that you shouldn't apologize to them, you should. You should make it right. But first, you've got to make it right with God. Get your vertical relationship fixed before you worry about the horizontal relationship. See, repentance is first vertical before it's horizontal. Now, there's a difference in feeling guilt for the mess you made with your sin and repenting to God because of your sin. 
And we have to understand that. Repentance is sorrow because of what your sin has done to God first, others second, and yourself last. Here's the third thing the repentant thief realized. He threw himself on the grace of God. Now look, what he asked is a crazy request. He is, he is looking at Jesus saying, Jesus, you are the perfect sinless son of God. You are God in the flesh. You are the Messiah. When you get to your kingdom, could you just, I'm just a lowly, pathetic thief, deserving of death, deserving of hell, who God, I can't do nothing for you. I'm not coming down to serve you for 50 years. I got nothing to offer you. But can you remember me when you get there? The only thing crazier than his request is the fact that Jesus grants it. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why, why did he, he had nothing to gain by accepting this thief. This thief, he would never do anything useful for Jesus. He would never help build his kingdom. He would never witness to anybody. He would never go on a mission trip. He would never give any money to the church. But Jesus grants his request. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world or find people, only find people who could help his cause. He came to save the world because they couldn't do anything for him. Because without him, we were hopelessly lost. And that is grace. Grace is what you show people when you love them and they can do nothing for you. Look at Jesus' response again in verse 23. <clears throat> Sorry, verse 43. says, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That is the essence of the gospel. You will be with me. Salvation is being united with God. Christian conversion isn't about a change of circumstances. It's about a change of position. You are now identified with Jesus because of what he did for you. See, the cross, the cross of Jesus, it shows us the dividing line of all of humanity. It shows us the reason for the whole Bible. Each of us will be one of these two criminals. Even those who are saved, throughout your life, you're either going to reject the word of God and reject Jesus' conviction and reject when Jesus tries to, to get a hold of your heart or you're going to repent and walk with him. We all are going to have to make a decision. You know, these men, they looked identical in life, but one is now in heaven with Jesus and the other one is in hell, separated from God for all of eternity. Like these thieves, we're guilty. We're condemned. We can reject Jesus and his salvation or we can repent and accept him. We have to make a choice. We have to choose him because Jesus will not force himself on anybody. That's true for salvation and for walking with God after we're saved. What are you going to choose this morning?